You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So hi, everyone, and welcome to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with uh, Susanna Barkataki, and we are going to talk about yoga and inclusivity, and we're going to dive into some deep topics that every yoga practitioner and every yoga teacher uh, and everybody really in the yoga community, I think, should really perk up their ears and uh, listen as deeply with an open heart as possible. So, Susanna, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience. I really, really appreciate it. So just big, open-hearted welcome. Thank you so much, Kino. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here and to speak with you. Yeah, super. So uh, we are here to talk about the amazing work that you do. And I would love to hear about uh, what experiences really motivated you to start doing the work that you do. And then also perhaps if you can kind of share with everyone, what is the work that you do? What is the, the wonderful book that you've written and how you bring your message out into the world? Yes. Um, so first, I'll just share with folks, uh, my name is Susanna Barkataki, and I use she, her, um, hers pronouns. And I'm coming to you from Tataviam and Chumash land, which is colonized as Santa Clarita in Southern California. And, you know, the work I do is, it's kind of unique work because I see myself as working towards yoga as unity. But that work came from a deep sense and feeling of separation and not belonging. And like you, Kino, I'm mixed. I'm Indian and British. And I came into the world at a time when there were all these messages telling me I wasn't wanted or I wasn't welcome, you know, from subtle, like the way I was treated in school to really overt, like racist discrimination. And so growing up in that environment made it so um, made it so it was really really challenging to feel at home in my own body and my own skin and my own experience and also certainly in the world around me now I initially rejected a lot of my culture like the Indian culture that I've been raised with and had grown up with because I grew up with yogic practices not so much asana more like pratyahara focusing dhyana meditation dharana mindfulness practices with within my family with um, my community and the temple with our spiritual teachers and so those were all practices that I had and held quite close but couldn't share in the world around me at the time in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s because those were the things I was being rejected or made fun of for. So what I realized is instead of pushing away those things that made me different than the norm, I actually needed to turn towards them and embrace them and invite what I saw was a real lack, and I know you probably have some things to say about this, but a real lack of a depth of practice in the yoga world in the West 
that there was an invitation or an opening to say, hey, there's more to this practice. Asana is wonderful. And there's tapas practice, there's discipline, there's mindfulness, there's, you know, mantra, uh, mudra, there's so much more yoga ethics that can expand our practice even more. And so that's how I came into doing this work, sort of accidentally being a teacher, but also doing it in order to really heal my own sense of separation. And in that seek to help others heal their senses of separation with themselves and go deeper into a a more expanded yoga practice. I think that that's a beautiful way of talking about leading in rather than moving away from those things which kind of accentuate difference. And I think that's a very important thing to remember in our kind of contemporary yoga world where, you know, it almost starts to feel like we take it for granted that you know, you can pop into a yoga class, but in the decades that you're talking about and in your lived experience being, you know, of Indian descent, that these are cultural practices that created, you know, real, a real sense of ostracization and a real sense of kind of separation from the norm. And then to have it kind of flipped and turned around and turned into something that, you know, everybody uh, can just kind of pop into at the local gym or that, you know, can be something that, um, is taught and worked with primarily by people who are not only not of Indian descent, but as you mentioned, don't have the depth of the training or cannot demonstrate kind of cultural immersion within the culture and the origin culture of yoga. So what, and as you said, you know, I, I definitely have some experience of that in the yoga world where, you know, my, my experience in the practice comes from my teachers in India and going back and forth and practicing there and kind of immersing myself in the culture. Then, then to come back to kind of yoga in the West, where I think my first interaction with yoga in the West was, um, when, uh, some, some gym, I can't remember which gym said, Oh, we have yoga teachers here. They're trained on a yoga fit weekend. And that's kind of the yoga that we offer. And these were, they were teaching, you know, a mix of, you know, aerobics and step aerobics and jazzercise. And then they added in yoga fit as like part of a fitness routine. So then that was kind of the avenue that, you know, many people were starting to have conversations about yoga and it was just treated as more of like a, you know, stretching or more of a superficial kind of practice. And then it was more easily integrated into the kind of, you know, um, Western fitness industry. And then the imagery around fitness kind of was transferred onto the imagery around yoga. And I found, you know, I think that this is very different than the experience of spiritual practices that originate in the long cultural history of India to the extent that some people that I would interact with didn't even know that yoga was from India. And I think this is probably what's referred to now as cultural appropriation. And maybe you could talk about the difference between cultural appropriation, kind of define that for people. And then, and then especially for those individuals who are practicing yoga who don't want to commit an act of harm, how can they move into uh, cultural appreciation instead yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's such a a blessing. I just want to kind of take a moment for folks to appreciate if you've had the experience of having uh, a teacher or a practice or an experience with yoga that does create that sense of belonging or sense of home or inclusion. Um, it's no small thing 
right? That we're able to connect to this practice. And it's a practice that's been, um, like Kino said, developed and codified. It's an organized system. It's a philosophical system and an ethical system that's been around for thousands of years. It's developed in the Saraswati River Valley and the Indus River, River Valley, which were organized and advanced civilizations. They had uh, cities that were built out of brick houses on grids, walls surrounding them, which indicates there may have been, you know, some need for protection, but also um, there was a lot of trade with different communities and cultures, including East Africa and Phoenicia. And it was in this context that early yoga practitioners said, we need to find a way of connecting to, uh, to source and also to the elements, to what's around. So earth, prithvi, water, jal, vayu, air, akash, space, um, agni, fire, and align our inner nature with all that is around us to create more harmony and more freedom. And so there's a lot more to yoga than, um, than you might get, like you're saying, <laughs> Kino, at a... Um, at a YMCA. Now, again, I'm not in any way putting that down. I think it's a doorway in and it's an important doorway. Um, it's more just knowing that there's more. And so this is what cultural appropriation is. And I can define it for you. I'm just going to look at my definition here, but it's, it's really taking something from a culture that's not one's own and doing it in a way that, um, that causes harm to the source culture. And that harm can be material harm. It can be harm of disrespect. It can be cultural, spiritual, economic, social. Um, there's so many ways that cultural appropriation can show up. Really, it's like a finger or I kind of like pointing at or a canary in a, in a coal mine, pointing at something deeper, which is colonization, oppression, and empire. And so sometimes I hear from people, why are you so bothered, right? It's just clothing. It's just an outfit. It's just a costume. It's just a bindi. Um, but the reason that people get so upset about cultural appropriation is the very thing that someone from the dominant culture can do with impunity or uh, they actually get celebrated is something that I or another South Asian person or Indian person, if we do it we actually get oppressed. And an example would be, I remember coming back from a temple, uh, a puja, which is like a spiritual ceremony, wearing a bindi and a salwar kameez and getting made fun of and, and actually threatened with violence by some um, local American boys. You know, this was in Los Angeles. And that was, you know, a couple decades ago or a decade ago, maybe, um, maybe a little bit less. And yet, one of my friends recently, her son, who's a child in elementary school, um, was called a dothead. And so you can see that those things that like the cultural practices that hold a lot of meaning because a bindi, yes, it's a fashion accessory. And yes, I wear, you know, bindis when I go to a wedding or to a party, but it's also a spiritual signifier and it is there to denote this, you know, the Agnya Chakra the third eye and to open and awaken that quality in us. And so there's a lot of depth and meaning both culturally, spiritually, 
And so when someone just takes that and puts it on as like, oh, I'm feeling kind of avant-garde, you know, I'm going to wear a bindi, it's doubly harmful because one, it waters down the meaning. And then two, it undermines the oppression that folks from the culture experience for that same thing. So it's a big issue and we can get into cultural appreciation, but I want to see if you have any questions about that. Yeah, no, even just that, I think that it's useful to kind of that, like dig into that a little bit because it's not, you know, it's not only the, the, the bindi, right? So that's one thing about the, the, yes, it's one, it's one aspect, but then, you know, if you go into the temples in India after the puja is performed, then there are these sacred markings to signify, you know, the different, the, the different deities of worship. And some of the things that have come on is, you know, sometimes the, Westerners not knowing what they're doing will put the markings on their head. And it's this thing of the notion of that you are an individual who's this sacred practice belongs to. And it's this idea of the sacred and that you would be persecuted for how you worship a sense of sacred. And this goes into, you know, the, the, the centuries long history of religious persecution that mm-hmm. is perpetuated by any culture that is dominant. So any dominant culture engages in these acts of persecution, but the Western culture in particular has a vast and long history, specifically of religious persecution mm-hmm. and particularly the religion of black and brown people, where mm-hmm. even we can look at the kind of historical doctrines within uh, Western culture about needing to civilize and Christianize our little brown brothers that's actually written in some of the historical documents and imperial manifestos so when we think about that that this is this is a practice that was not only marginalized but it was persecuted and people died to preserve these practices people put their lives on the line to uh, hold the line against the very strong imperial culture that was aiming to uh, completely erase the the the, the you know the, this this sense of the sacred so to have that um, you know, to have all, to have the history of that actual harm be kind of swept away in an act of fashion or in an act mm-hmm. of what's kind of trendy, exotic, and new without knowing where it comes from and why. So I feel like what ends up happening in our kind of contemporary yoga world is like, oh, you're white, you can't wear a bindi. Oh, you're mm-hmm. white, you can't have those markings on your head. It's like, that's not the point. Like, you don't want to, it's not about creating these like police that go around and say, you said this at the wrong place and you were the bindi and you're not allowed to because you're white and you're not Indian. It's, it's not like, it's not that. It's more nuanced than that. It kind of defeats the purpose. Otherwise, you know, where's the learning? Where's the history? It's like, wait a minute. So if you're wearing the bindi, know why? and know what it's about and know where and when it's appropriate and understand so that if someone says, what's that on your head? You're not just like, I don't know. It's cool. I got it. It accessorized, you know? And so it's, it's deeper than that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, it, it requires depth and meaning and it requires, you know, all of those deeper aspects of the yoga practice of, of someone to go in and do the learning, you know, and do mm-hmm. the deconstructing. And, and it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a demanding a lot, which I think is very, 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 very useful. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about was also the monetization aspect of cultural mm. appropriation. So then, so then, so here we have, say, you know, uh, these sacred practices that have been protected very much on, you know, on, on the backs of thousands of generations of yoga practitioners within India against the, you know, um, the imperial and uh, a force of, of Britain that that was dominating India against you know, uh, historical trends that weren't always conducive to yogic practices. Mm -hmm. And then if we take a look at those practices to see today who, you know, who and in what context uh, is able to actually profit off of these practices. Mm -hmm. 
how often is it, uh, you know, teachers that have studied within a traditional Indian lineage, how often is it teachers of Indian origin practicing within India that get lifted up? I, I think it's not as often as those individuals who fit, you know, uh, that that kind of fitness mold that, uh, you know, yoga in the, the West kind of was appropriated for. So what do you, what do you think about the, the, the monetization of sacred practices and how does that fit into cultural appropriation? Yes, it's exactly where it applies because, you know, just because we've benefited from a practice doesn't mean that it's ours to do what we want with. And when you look at a lot of yogic practices, they're really about uh, disconnecting from attachment, letting go of attachments to the body, using the body as a vessel or a vehicle for um, finding freedom, finding liberation. And that is exactly the opposite of what it looks like, you know, to fit into cute yoga pants or to have an outfit, you know, which are honestly the biggest money makers in yoga today are sellers of yoga clothing, yoga props. And so it's really kind of a, <laughs> almost like an oxymoron because yoga is freedom and, and, Aparigraha, letting go of attachment, whereas the people who are profiting off it are actually trying to stimulate our need as practitioners to think we need more, to think we need a prop, to think we need a certain mat or a certain outfit, or we need to look a certain way, when really that's not what yoga is about. It's for everyone. And you can be injured in practice. You can have a larger body in practice. You can have physical disabilities and practice mental disabilities in practice. And none of that uh, costs anything, and nor does it take any particular uh, products in order to support. my The lineage that I trained in and, and come from is one in the TKV Desikachar lineage uh, that really says like yoga is about teaching who's in front of you and tailoring the experience, whether it's meditation or pranayama breath, you know, control of, of the breath and life force or asana physical practice to the people who are right in front of you. And that isn't really something that can be capitalized upon or marketed if you're refining the practice for the individual. To some extent, as we move into like westernization of any practice, there's going to be, you know, the way that like white supremacist, neo-colonial capital, you know, capital, uh, capitalism works, there's going to be some of that that comes in that's somewhat inevitable, but it is really striking how much yoga has been taken over. And that taking over really has diminished, I think, people's access. So this is a thing. It's like for folks listening and watching, you deserve access to a full expanded yoga practice. It's not up to, there shouldn't be gatekeepers. One, um, if we could have written a rule book about cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, I certainly would have written one. Embrace Yoga's Roots that I wrote. It's not really a rule book at all. It's more like, here's how some things to keep in mind and things to consider as you're deepening your practice today in our time. But you deserve access to that expanded practice rather than a watered down practice that is the one that we get for the most part in the West. And it's really up to us practitioners as well as teachers to create that, to ask 
yoga teachers to ask people who, you know, run yoga programs or workshops or retreats, are you going to be going into yoga philosophy? Will you have, you know, mantra mudra, some of the, the more like the deeper practices? Will you be talking about yoga ethics? And the more we ask for that, the more the culture will start to shift. And the responsibility on the teachers too, because yes. some of the reasons why, you know, someone might not have uh, yoga philosophy, mantra, mudra in their trainings or in their offerings is because they haven't studied it. So this is a great opportunity to recognize that, hey, if you're not a master of something you want to include in your training, you can bring in someone particularly potentially someone of South Indian descent who has trained in that lineage and bring them in and elevate them and lift them up as a teacher. And I think that's, that's super important as well. Um, you know, uh, I think it's extremely personally, I think it's extremely important to have some experience learning the Sanskrit chanting from a native speaker, because I know myself, I mean, I've been trying to pronounce Sanskrit for more than 20 years and I have I still sound like an American trying to pronounce Sanskrit. And um, this is something that, you know, I just can't, like, I'm never going to get over that. You know, I'm going to continue to work and work and continue to fail for the rest of my life, but I'm going to make a concerted effort. It gets a little better. Every time I continue to study with my chanting teacher a little bit more, I, every time I'm like, oh, there's that, I, I just rolling the R in a way that I haven't, though that was that aspirated sound that I couldn't do. There's a different like rhythm and tone or something like that. And that's um, that's just something I think is really important for, for, for teachers and studio owners that are out there is that you don't have to have all the answers. This is a great opportunity to actually bring in someone who is Indian to teach some of these sacred teachings that are a part of, you know, part of a culture that, that that's in their family history, that's in their cultural history. I have one, one interesting question that's kind of come up in recent discussions, which is the idea of, Accessibility and yoga being for all intersected with the question of accessibility within kind of casteism and that question within India. And I don't feel like an expert within that. And this came up in a conversation that I was I was having about um, uh, uh, with in relation to into into racism being a spiritual obstacle for everyone. So how does how does that intersection play out? And I guess also just what is intersectionality for people that aren't familiar with it? Mm. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I think this is this is so great. And it's so important to address caste oppression within yoga because unfortunately, yoga has been utilized as a tool of Brahminical patriarchy to oppress and leave out uh, Dalit folks or outcast folks from the practice. Now, yoga itself in terms of the original early practitioners was not a part of the caste system. It actually predates that. It's a Vedic practice. And as I mentioned, was an earth, you know, kind of a, an earth and elemental based practice and also a spiritual philosophical practice that developed alongside religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and then later Islam and Christianity. And in South Asia. And initially, the practitioners of yoga were not uh, discriminating based on, on caste. However, as Brahminical um, 
patriarchal practices and kind of the codification of who had access to the divine or who had access to spiritual truth, spiritual wisdom, who received boons or benefits from practices like yoga or other rituals, pujas, yagnas. Uh, that's when there was the, I would say, actually some of the first co-optation and the first appropriation of yoga out of the hands of the populace, the general populace, and into a kind of elite class and, and reinforced by casteism. Oh, can you hear me? Okay. Now you're um, back. Did you hear what I said? I heard that was the original act of cultural appropriation. Yeah, that I believe was one of the first appropriations of yoga because yoga is inherently, when you look at some of yoga ethics, like ahimsa, non-harm, um, like svadhyaya, self-inquiry, ishvara, parnidana, these are foundational principles of self-sovereignty. And the very nature of creating non-harm or being an ideal being, right? Coming into that Swaraj self-rule, it precludes oppression of another group or person or people because part of the aim is to create that sovereignty for others, not just for oneself. Now, I want to make clear, not every yoga practitioner, either historically or currently, practices in that way. Some people are out for their own liberation, and they're not as interested in collective liberation. Um, in many ways, not all, but many renunciates are practicing in that way. There also are many, many yoga practitioners who historically and currently practice for their own and others' liberation. So all of that to say, caste oppression is a real thing, and yoga has been used to exclude but it's not in the nature of what yoga is or in its early practices that, um, that it's inherent, that it's an exclusive practice. So that's something that, uh, that for me is part of that decolonization and pulling apart of the nuances of going into the heart of yoga, reclaiming it. Now, I also do want to say for some folks, especially, um, and I'm not an expert in this either, I'd refer people to Equality Labs, which is a great resource for um, caste, working against caste depression and for caste equality. Um, and there's a number of other organizations in India as well. That one's international. But I'm not an expert on, and I can't, as someone with caste privilege, uh, as a, someone from the Brahmin caste, I wouldn't be the ideal person to speak to how we remedy this. And there are some caste abolitionists who say we actually can't reclaim all of these practices because they have been so oppressive. And so I just want to put that out there to say, to some extent, you know, imagine that we're like holding tension, almost like we have a rubber band or something, and you're holding tension, seeking to create change and find liberation, but holding multiple truths as we're doing that. There's not just one way forward. No, thank you, Susanna. I think it's a really important uh, piece of the conversation, you know, and to, and, 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 and as, as someone's writing in the chat, that it seems like it's a practice in and of itself to kind of decolonize and do the work of understanding the impact of 
colonization, the impact of, of, of the influence of any dominant culture on the presentation of, you know, of yoga, whether that dominant culture is the Brahmin culture within the caste system of India, or whether that dominant culture is, you know, the majority white culture in Western, you know, Western or Eurocentric uh, civilizations in our contemporary age. And mm -hmm. this is this unpacking is kind of the essence of what we're called to with spiritual self-inquiry. You know, if this, if this is not Swadhyaya, if this is also not the work of, of purification, of, of then, then kind of what is, right? The mental aspect mm -hmm. of purification. So and this gets to, I wanted to just address intersectionality, um, just to name that, because for folks listening, especially if you haven't looked at identity work and kind of looking at where you have power, privilege, um, or where you're, you experience marginalization, it's so helpful to bring in the work of folks like Audre Lorde or Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the experience. Audre Lorde said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not a single issue being, and I don't live a single issue life as a Black woman, queer, right? There's so many aspects to her experience. And so Kimberly Crenshaw, um, defined and wrote about intersectionality, again, a Black woman just acknowledging and lifting up that viewpoint. And she said, essentially, it refers to how categories like race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability are interconnected and work together to affect our individual and collective experiences. And it also explains how these categories correlate to different yet connected systems of oppression and liberation. This is a lot of what I wrote about in Embrace Yoga's Roots and in uh, the workbook too, to invite us into that svadhyaya of where are, do I experience privilege? Where do I experience power? And am I just naturally kind of lifted up? Not so I can feel guilty about it or you can feel guilty about it, but so I can utilize that power to help create change? And where do I experience marginalization or not belonging? Where am I not included? So I can then also address that, tend to it, begin by addressing the broken or the disconnected or the separated parts of myself so I can come into union, which is really what yoga is about. And so our practice of yoga today in the world as we know it with all of the issues that exist actually we're invited into an intersectional practice so useful to kind of dive in and define that term you know in terms of the application to yoga and then also just the application to the yoga off the mat the those broader social justice issues that are inherently part of the questions of equity and the questions of how to make our yoga world and our world in general, more equitable. I also really love that you brought up the point about not uh, sort of taking it personal. You know, one of the, 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 the biggest things that comes up is, well, you know, I may experience, you know, I, I suffer too. So therefore this doesn't, you know, this privilege doesn't apply to me or why do I need to think about that? I'm just struggling to put food on the table. I don't, that's all I, I have time for. And that's real, you know, economic disadvantage is real. Like that's a, that, that's a, that's a, that, that's real hardship, especially over the last 
you know, two years that people have been struggling with. So, you know, it's not to, to denigrate that or to brush it aside and, and neither is it to create kind of this, you know, moral guilty conscience, but to, 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 to bring up issues and think about them very much like if you take it back to the yoga practice, right? So, you know, it's not that it's a problem the way, you know, you're doing your forward bend, but at the same time, it may benefit you to think about these alignment pointers, this breath work, this inner subtle flow of energy that, you know, you can tune into and all of those things are potentially beneficial to think about. And it is a lot and it can be overwhelming. And yet this is why we're here. You know, what, what's this, what's calling us into the yoga practice is yes, it feels good when we practice. Yes. It's a home, uh, a kind of homecoming, a kind of sense of belonging, especially for those who felt that they didn't belong anywhere else. And then it's a call to, you know, pay it forward in some way. So in terms of actual equity and in terms of the issues that you see in our yoga world, um, what are some of the biggest blocks to actually achieving equity in the yoga world? And what type of solutions do you see as ways that yoga teachers, yoga practitioners can potentially play a part in creating a more equitable yoga world? Yeah. You know, the blocks to equity in the yoga world, I just would invite folks listening and um, watching to think for a moment about just visualize in your mind yoga class or yoga studio or a yoga workshop and think about who's there, who's teaching and who's not there and who's missing. And when you do that, you know, for me, it's I was in Florida for a while in Orlando. Now I'm in Los Angeles. And it's actually the same kinds of folks who are centered and the same kinds of folks who are not visible. And that might be, you know, and you can, if folks are online, you can drop this in, in the chat, but it would be like folks with traumatic brain injury, bigger bodied folks, folks of color, um, veterans, young people older people, folks with disabilities. Those are all people who aren't centered. South Asians, Indians, right? I just recently went to a lovely yoga festival. It was wonderful. And the only Indians that were there, there were um, three of us and amongst a hundred, you know, hundreds of people we were presenting. Now that was, first of all, I'm sure, you know, you've been to festivals where there's no South Asians, right? Not presenters or nothing. And so it was great, one, that there were three presenters, not just one, pointing out tokenization, because not any, we all don't speak to yoga or to our experiences from the same place. And so yet, who's not centered and who can we bring in? So if you're thinking, well, yeah, I'm white or I'm, you know, thin or flexible, whatever. And, but what can I do? How can I help? You know, I want to change this, but I'm not really sure. I'd say, first of all, great. I'm glad you're thinking that. And there's, there's quite a lot that we can actually do. And, and so one just begins with that honest survey of the world that you're in, whether you're a teacher or a practitioner. Two, if you're a practitioner, learning from and seeking out, like decolonizing your bookshelves. You may have a lot of yoga books, but if you look at those yoga books, how many are written 
by Indian teachers or South Asian teachers? How many are written by living teachers who are Indian and South Asian? Um, probably not that many. Uh, so seek out those writers, seek out those authors and bring those works in. Take workshops from teachers who are South Asian, are Indian, are Desi, which means like Indian and diaspora. Then also learning from and lifting up trans folks, folks of color, folks in bigger bodies, folks with disabilities, veterans, looking for those kinds of practices. Because the truth is, when you think about it, all of us are just temporarily able-bodied if we live long enough. If we live long enough, we're all going to experience a need to change our practice, a need to adapt our practice, a need to find accessibility, whether that's mentally through meditation or physically through asana. And so beginning that now, wherever you are, even if you know it's a long way away from you, you think, bringing that forward for teachers going deeper and studying the eight limbs, but also beyond the eight limbs. Uh, students too, practitioners too, even if you don't want to be a teacher, you can absolutely go deeper and study, like take workshops on yoga philosophy, um, take workshops on mantra and mudra, and learn a greater expanse of what yoga can be. Go with what you're drawn into. And then also don't be too intimidated. It's a vast body of knowledge. My teacher Shankarji always jokes with me and says, you know, you think you know so much. You could study this your whole life and not be done. And so we won't learn everything, but the areas or places that interest you go deeper in that. For teachers, also just because you learn something, say you're, you're really devoted to your mantra practice, like you're saying, you know, um, that doesn't mean you should be the one to teach it. Perhaps you have a deep, devoted personal mantra practice, but when you're ready to say, bring in a workshop on mantra or share that with your community, perhaps you bring in a native speaker or you know someone who's been speaking and, and learning Sanskrit for a long time to do that. Um, we don't have to teach everything that we learn. There's a lot of things that are part of my personal practice that I don't teach because I'm not the best person to teach them. And so having that humility, I think, is really important. Um, I think those are, are a good place to start. That's quite a few, um, but uplifting, uplifting others. Um, there's no scarcity, you know? One other thing that I'd, I'd like to just add in there as well is that it's something with really low-hanging fruit for everyone is to follow some uh, teachers, speakers of South Asian descent in the Desi community, and then also follow some teachers and leaders within the social justice community and anyone that hasn't done that. And then do this, like follow them on Instagram or Facebook or whatever social media you're into. And then I really recommend just don't comment for a while. Just, you know, just read and observe for a little bit because it takes a while to kind of, you know, get to know someone and kind of open your mind and think, okay, this is how they operate. Oh, that's interesting. That was not what I, or even that may trigger me a little bit. And then just leave them there for a little bit before you start interacting and saying, well, you know what I think is this. And I think that that's a way we can show respect and humility. Um, it's extremely important. The, 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 the second thing, which I would love to piggyback off of what you said, which is inviting, invite, 
like if you have a practice that you are really, really inspired by to invite someone who is a teacher to you, I think is a really beautiful place to occupy in the uh, yoga world, which is kind of what I like to call the role of the inspired student, which is a way to really, you know, lift up um, teachers and a way to lift up people that are just um, true experts. So along those lines, are there things that you would kind of go back to as a practice? Are there things that you would teach? Like what is the essence kind of of your teaching in terms of what you kind of feel comfortable sharing the kind of foundation of yourself as a, as, as, a, as a teacher of the practice? Uh, and, and, and I mean, this is the practice, this educational work you do, this is the practice. I mean, I don't necessarily want to make a distinction, but you know, I, I, I think you get it what I'm what I'm saying here, some, some practical thing that someone could apply in a time of stress or conflict that is something that is, that is uh, the, the foundation of your teaching. Yes. The, you know, I was a accidental teacher in a way. Uh, I was a high school teacher, English and history before I started teaching yoga. And I studied with Shankarji in, in Bihar for a few years and what he said to me before I left, the last time that I left, was, Susanna, you need to take what I've taught you and take what you understand and embody about yoga and share it with those who need it most. He's a teacher who teaches to Dalit folks, to outcast folks, to anyone who wants to learn. His particular teaching is on the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, scriptural teaching and analysis and, and also dhyana meditation. I don't do what he does. Uh, I'm a different kind of practitioner. And he was also very clear that I didn't need to do what he does, but I needed to share what I know best, which really is, I would say, embodying yoga, yoga ethics, and our, the values that come from yoga in everyday life. And I can really speak to that and teach to that one, because uh, the particular life that I lead is a householder, a grihasta path. Uh, I chose that. I was While I was studying, I was unclear whether I was going to become a renunciate or a householder. And during my studies, I actually met uh, someone who was also really interested in going deeper in yoga philosophy and yoga practice. And we both were considering, you know, becoming renunciates. And then we realized that something else was, you know, there was like a passion for the spiritual practice, but also like sparks were flying. And so instead of just jumping into a romantic relationship, we said, you know, let's do this really on a foundation of the yamas and internally on the niyamas, which are like the yogic ethics. And that was over 15 years ago now, 16 or 17 years ago. And so through that practice, someone like me, and this is just a kind of personal aside, but I never thought I'd be married. I never thought I'd have a child. I wasn't planning on that path. I'm really independent. And so I was able to see through a practice of nonviolence and non-harm and satya truth and, you know, astaya non-stealing and um, brahmacharya energy management, aparigraha letting go of attachment, that I didn't have to give myself up to be in a relationship. And that actually an earthly, practical, romantic, 
spiritual, this relationship could be a spiritual path as well. And so when I teach, I teach from that place of we're in the world, we're, you know, embodied. This is not a practice that's like totally disconnected from work, from oppression, from desire, from fashion, like we're in it. How can we bring yoga into every aspect of our lives in what we're doing? Because that's been my path. And so that really feels like the richness of what I have to share and why, you know, the other, the other reason I chose to run yoga teacher trainings was because when I came back from India, a lot of my colleagues and friends, people who are working in nonprofits or different communities, kind of alternative settings, asked me, can you share more of what you know about yoga with us? And so I thought, you know what? No one actually cared about the knowledge I had. You know, this is unbelievable from, uh, I felt in, in Los Angeles, they didn't care that I'd studied with yogis or sannyasis that had come out of caves or that I'd done silent meditation practices for years. They really just wanted to see like Yoga Alliance credentials. And so I thought, okay, one, there's no training schools like what I would love to run, which is foregrounding myself as a person of color, other teachers of color, queer teachers, trans teachers, teachers who are thinking about how does yoga show up for teen parents? How does how can yoga show up for um, folks who are in recovery? And so I wanted to teach with and to those communities. And that's why I started to teach yoga teacher trainings that and to help people embody yoga in their lives. So I think that's the heart of my teachings. And what I would say to people is pick a yama, pick a niyama. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, right? Or pick up a book. It's in my book. It's in there's most books in your books um, to describe yoga ethics and start there. Start with one practice. Maybe it's satya. Maybe it's what is my truth in this situation or how can I listen in such a way that the truth of the situation or someone else's truth comes into being, right? Maybe it's ahimsa, who knows, but pick and begin to practice some yogic values. Susanna, thank you. I think those are really great keys to have people start. I think that's a wonderful place for many people to begin and may, and also uh, be a lifelong practice, you know? So one of the keys, I think, is that the yoga practice, if it is for everyone, has the potential to change the world, right? If every single person on the planet had a daily devotional spiritual practice of some type, our planet would be a different place. You know, and if that practice was based not only in, you know, uh, the, 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 the sort of surface levels of what whatever religion was, but was really based in that deep personal introspection. So what kind of world do you see for us? What kind of where can where can we utilize these tools? What's the future of yoga? And and within that, you know where do, where does this dominant culture fit in? You know, so many, there are some people who say, well, now I, I'm not qualified to be a yoga teacher. Cause I'm not, uh, you know, I don't check any of those boxes, you know? So where do the, where, where does someone who's been, who, who happens to be, you know, say white, cisgender, able-bodied, economically privileged, but who's been practicing for 40 years, where do they fit in into this, you know, vision of a more equitable world where we're, where we're moving towards? Yes, I love this question. We need all of us 
We need every single one of us. And it absolutely is true. You know, the world that I see and, and I actually see it happening. I'm curious if you do too, you know, you can share and other folks uh, as well, but where there's a yogi or yoga practitioner in every school on every block that yoga isn't just in studios, but it's in community centers, that it's something that we practice and that we're able to learn and share and kind of rely on. I think of mantra, manas is like the mind and tra, try as a device. It's a support for the mind. So it's like yoga can become, as more and more of us practice, this device or support for our lives. It answers some of the huge questions that I think we're grappling with. We have this opportunity in the pandemic that we're still in, in the pandemic of racism that's been going on for hundreds of years, oppression, you know, all of these things that that are really challenging issues that often I think we can feel hope, like hopelessness or defeated, or just like, how do I address this? We can turn to a practice that has solutions for these things. We're already starting to see it, and there are much more accessible classes. Because of being online, we can practice with a far greater array of teachers. Um, You can seek out South Asian teachers. You can seek out teachers who've gone very in-depth into their practice in a specific field or a specific um, avenue, like, say, yoga nidra or meditation practice. and. I think we have this potential to, as we change ourselves and support ourselves, we're changing the world and the community around us. So that the world I see is like practitioners everywhere, you know, yoga practitioners everywhere, teachers, but not necessarily teachers who teach in a studio, but teachers who teach by living and embodying yoga ethics. Um, and you know, there's so many millions of us practicing just in the U S alone. It's probably over 40 million people at this point and maybe more, um, that was a study done about four years ago, maybe five now that said there were 36 million (laughs) practitioners. And for every one yoga teacher, there were two people wanting to become a yoga teacher. And I think we need to unpack and kind of decolonize too that. Like, what does it even mean to be a yoga teacher? It doesn't necessarily just mean asana, it can, but it can also mean living a a life of yoga ethics, diffusing arguments, supporting friends, working in your community. All of that can be ways of teaching or embodying living your practice. Yeah, this question of yoga teacher is a big one. You know, sometimes people in like who are newer students or newer teachers ask me questions like, what can I do to claim my place in the world of yoga? Or how do I become a yoga star? And I just feel like, listen, do not embark upon this path to claim your place. Do not embark upon uh, yoga as a career path. It is possible to you know, teach yoga and create a livelihood for yourself. And so then like, it's not wrong to be paid for your teaching. You know, it's not wrong to charge for your teaching at the same time. If you enter into the world of teaching yoga with the idea of claiming fame and fortune, then I think we're so far away from what these traditional teachings are about, you know, 
Um, and, and then, you know, and then it's also the flip side. You can also earn a decent living and you should be able to pay your bills, whether you're a yoga studio or a yoga teacher, but this question of the yoga Alliance and, you know, uh, is a big one. When I first came back from India, I had the same experience as you where people were not interested that I had been trained in in India or that I had a teacher in India that I'd spent months and months of my life over a period of years there, you know, that I, that, and then, and they immediately said, well, do you have that yoga Alliance uh, certificate? And I said, what is yoga Alliance? I, I, I literally didn't know what it was. And then, you know, and they said, oh, well, you know, if you have that yoga Alliance certificate, then we could consider. And then I, and then I, you know, I had to do a whole like explanation of where I trained and where I studied, where yoga comes from and in the process, you know, educate the, the people who, whose yoga studios I was asking to teach a class at. And it was a, it was an interesting, interest, interesting situation. I think things are much different now. So I would agree with you that the world is changing, that people are more interested in the dialogue of how to include and how to honor definitely the rich cultural history of India within, you know, within, within their personal practice. And I think, um, I think many yoga practitioners are, are, and and yoga studios are, are, are starting to open their eyes to questions, even just questions about, am I doing the right thing? And I think that in and of itself is the place to begin so that, so that again, we're not creating these police that go around and say, you did this, you're bad. You did this, you're good. Cause then it's just begins to be this, the more separation, but to foster this idea of kind of questioning is what I'm doing. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not this is equitable. I'm sitting with these questions um, and sitting with my own with and, and questioning my identity and my intersections of privilege and disadvantage. And, and I think it's that kind of um, sort of open-hearted questioning that's willing to embrace the difficulty and willing to embrace the discomfort that can lead to the substantive change. You know, and I, 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 I you, you asked if I saw that, and I, I do see that in the world, definitely. Um, I, I see a question of, of what are like some practical things uh, yoga studios can do. I can, and maybe you have some too. I mean, for, for, for us and for myself personally, we, uh, we have, we have scholarships allocated, uh, for, um, uh, for, for, for members of marginalized communities, including, and especially, uh, people of, uh, people of color. And this is something we do in our studios, in our online courses, um, and in our any any trainings or anything like that that we do. We also provide financial assistance um, uh, beyond uh, some of just the uh, just the classes. For example, even if you give someone a, a scholarship spot to a, a retreat or a training, it's not enough if they're going to have to take an airplane and have accommodation in a city that's not their own. It's going to be enough that that person, you know kicks off their job or something like that. So some things that, 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 that we do, um, uh, and, and, and definitely that, that notion of elevating and amplifying teachers of color and, and teachers of Indian origin are something that we do on a constant, just constant basis. And for me, the, the, the teachers from India is easy because I'm like, first thing that I always am so honored is like, wow, would my chanting teacher be willing to make a video and, you know, do a teaching. And so that's, I love the role of the inspired student. I mean, if I could choose, I think I would just be a student for the rest of my life personally. Do you have anything to add of some actionable steps some teachers or studio owners could do uh, to kind of help further the dialogue and, and create you know, some, some practical things that they could do? I love this question. And uh, so absolutely, teachers, studio owners invite in 
multiple South Asian teachers, right? There's so many of us right now. I feel like the South Asian community is this waking giant in like a kind of waking, sleeping tiger is how I visualize it in the yoga world in the West. It's not an accident. I just want to kind of remind us back to what Kino was saying. Yoga and Ayurveda sibling science were banned in many parts of India under British colonization. And, you know, my father was born right after India gained independence, but he and his siblings actually did not learn anything about the roots of yoga or even those civilizations that I talked about that yoga comes from. So the impact of colonization is huge. It can wipe out generations of cultural connection. And so I bring that up to say that uh, if we're looking at like the starting place and for folks listening, I'm holding my hands up with like one hand up and one hand below it, like significantly below it. A lot of times, though we may have cultural knowledge and practices, South Asians, Daisies, Indians, start at a disadvantage. And so when you hire, when you center, when you bring us in, and that includes like trans folks, non-binary folks, folks of caste and class disprivilege, right? Like really taking that time and effort to seek out those voices and not token. Can you hear? Yeah. Um, Not just tokenizing by bringing in one of us, but multiple. Being okay with the discomfort, like you said, Kino, like really sitting with, it's okay to do things and take steps, maybe mess up, try again, keep learning. For example, with me, there's folks I've worked with now for years and the beginning of our relationship, I called them in, you know, I like wrote to them and said, Hey, you're doing this, this, and this, it's kind of appropriative. Can we talk about it? And instead of just ignoring me, which of course many people do, um, I write a lot of letters like that. When people engage, what they find out is I'm willing to go deeper. I'm willing to have a conversation. I'm also willing to admit and see where I've messed up as well, because of course I don't know everything. And there's many communities that like, for example, around ableism or um, as a cis person being inclusive of trans and non-binary students that I may miss. And so if we can just kind of connect to that studentship, that openness to learning, and being willing to collaborate. I think of the brilliance of the yoga sangha and continually expanding our sangha, our community. Sangha is like the spiritual community. Um, When we're able to rely on one another instead of feeling competitive, this is huge. I just want to say for me, this was really huge. When I shifted from feeling like I need to focus on what I can get, what I can accomplish, what I can say, what I can do and shift it to like, how can I contribute or how can I lift others up? So for teachers and studios, having that approach, bringing almost like your yoga as a spiritual practice into your teaching, into your marketing, into what you actually do, then we're practicing that alignment, that ethical alignment as we're, as we're sharing. 
The other thing I would say is, like you said, Kino, is like really committing to an anti-racist practice and learning more about anti-racist and also anti-oppressive in general, because racism is just one of the issues, like you said, class um, is important as well. And so as you perhaps build out scholarship programs or um, you know, sliding scale programs or donation-based programs, really doing that in a way that respects the communities that you're working with. And like you said, kind of thoughtfully, isn't just like bringing one or two people, but I would say like in the trainings I run, I run um, 200 and 300 hour teacher trainings. And in the last one, we had 40 uh, scholarship students, full and partial scholarship students. So imagine how it changes a community, the YTT community, to have that many voices of different experience than the norm, right? So not maybe you can't do 40, but maybe you can do five or 10. Then um, reparations. Reparations is, is a deep practice of looking at where you can give back to communities who are most impacted. So for example, for me as a practitioner, an Indian who's living in diaspora, who's living in the US, I donate proceeds from every workshop, training, anything where I profit from yoga to the birthplace of yoga. So to South Asia, to India, to organizations. And I have resources like free resources on my website where you can read about where I donate. It's also in the book. And you can do your own research. Then along with that, or perhaps additionally to that, building relationships with nonprofits or organizations that are already doing good work in your community. So a concrete story about that is when I moved to Orlando, I knew that I wanted to work with folks, again, who are most marginalized, but I was new there and I didn't know how to connect. So I looked up different nonprofits who were already doing good work, went to their communities, learned about what they were doing, volunteered, supported, and then naturally and organically, I was able to share yoga in those spaces. And so building relationships, like really deep, authentic relationships are key. Not just like, hey, I'm here. Can I teach yoga? Um, No, like taking the time to get to know them and hearing what their needs are. Yeah, those are some. There's one last question, which I think is, or maybe one or two more questions from people who are tuning in that I think are very interesting. One is if you're a yoga studio and you want to offer a training for some, but you don't want to participate in the Yoga Alliance certification, is there a path for that? And this is something as this, you know, my husband and I run our yoga studio here in Miami. Uh, we, 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 we've, 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 we've deeply considered that ourselves and we have an apprenticeship training that runs over two years um, that goes f- way far and above beyond the Yoga Alliance accreditation. However, we did actually run into some obstacles with that, that teachers that had completed this program were still asked for this Yoga Alliance uh, paper. So what is what have you found a way to navigate that? You also run 200 and 300 hour trainings, which fall under the Yoga Alliance accreditation. Well, have you have you been able to navigate that in a in a creative way? Yeah, this is a it's a conundrum because really we don't want an organization like Yoga Alliance. It's only I don't know maybe a couple decades old, dictating 
what the future of yoga looks like and yoga education looks like in the West or anywhere. Um, that really should be coming from, again, the original stewards. And so, like, for example, my main teachers don't have a yoga alliance certification. It just wouldn't even make sense, you know, they, but yet they've been practitioners for decades of their lives and teachers as well. So the way I choose to navigate it is to offer right now is to offer what I see as high quality yoga education within or kind of above and beyond the Yoga Alliance framework and to offer certification if students want it. So to make it kind of clear that for me as a person of color, as a woman, I found those certifications to get me access. And so I want to be able to offer that point of access. Like if someone needs a certification to be able to teach in a studio, in a school, in a community, they can access that. They can get that, but that they certainly don't need to. So for the person who asked that, you absolutely do not need a Yoga Alliance certification to practice, to teach. Uh, it's, you know, often... Studios don't ask for that. Schools don't ask. Hospitals don't ask. What they do ask for is your certificate from your yoga training school. So whether you go to like Ignite, where I teach, or, you know, the Miami Life Center, wherever you go to get your training, that certificate should suffice in most cases. That said, if people want, then it can be useful. It's kind of like that compromise of holding the tension until we have something better of working within the system as we seek to change the system. I hear you. I think those are good. Those are, those are some good compromises. And I think I'm, you know, I sit with those as well. You know, um, the last question that's kind of come through in the chat, which I'll, I'll share is uh, from uh, a student who has joined a yoga teacher training. Um, and the student says, uh, not being South Asian, but being a person of color and understanding how non-inclusive studios can be. Uh, do you have any advice or reading on what angle to take being a person of color who's not South Asian and wanting inclusivity um, at the same time? Mm. Yeah. So first I just feel you uh, because I know how that can be a feeling not included. And I'm going to answer this from the point of view of a practitioner and then also as a teacher, because I'm not sure which way you're, you're asking and it's possibly relevant for folks for both. So for me, I often seek community as a practitioner. So I'll try to go to like, kind of like, hey, let's not take over, but let's like bring all of our brown bodies and experiences, you know, queer, magical, whatever, into this space. And then help shape the space to get our needs met. Now, that's only possible if I'm practicing in a place where I have community and I have friends that can, we can all do that together. I also look for that in a studio as a teacher. So I look for studios where maybe there's some white allies. Maybe there's some allies who will say, hey, give this teacher of color a primetime spot. Um, who will help me advocate? Because it really does take all of us and it takes us working together and advocating for ourselves, but also having that community that can support us and lift us up. If you're in a community or a space where that doesn't exist or you don't yet have those people, 
then I would absolutely say find them online because we are out here. You know, there's so many different people who are practicing now and who are showing up and speaking up and offering workshops and things like that. So look for and find community online and perhaps have that be the beginning of it as you seek to build that community in person. And then, you know, if a space just feels like too much work or all of a sudden you're like a yoga teacher or a practitioner, but you're also their diversity, equity, inclusion expert, and you're not being paid, right? You're paying them to practice. Then assessing, is this a good use of my energy? Or can I find a more nourishing space elsewhere? I do that a lot. Like I check in with myself. Am I basically doing unpaid labor here to educate? And if I am, then, and I don't feel like I want to continue doing it, I take a little bit of a step back and I move into other spaces to practice. Because really, you deserve, we all deserve practice spaces and yoga that serves us, that speaks to us, that is modifiable, that is going to nourish our bodies, our minds and spirits and all the experiences that we come here from. Susanna, that's awesome. I really feel your heart connection and the answer that you gave that you've really just really sit with that in a very present and real way, which is beautiful. Do you have any last things you'd like to share about where people can find your teaching? Any last words of encouragement for those individuals who are on the path as teachers, students, and as, you know, spiritual seekers on this path of yoga? Thank you so much for having me on your show, Kino. I'm so, so honored and grateful to be here with you. You know, I love to share a lot on Instagram. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, that's a great place to get free education. If you're wanting to go a little bit deeper, I would say, I brought my book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, um, of the book and a companion workbook out now. The workbook is newly released. And so you can go to embraceyogasrootsbook.com. And if you're interested in doing trainings, then that, you know, look into what you're going to get in a training. My particular training is very in-depth on yoga and social justice. So just right out the gate, making that clear, you have to be wanting to apply yoga in your life with a social justice lens, looking at identity, looking at power, looking at privilege, and going deeper into the roots of yoga. And so that you can find at embodyyogasroots.com. And we're enrolling, I think, right now for a 200-hour and 300 hour in 2022. Um, the wonderful ways to go deeper in your practice and it's all online. Um, so much fun. I love to teach. So, um, so that's like my favorite way to connect with people is, is through teaching and, um, and sharing this practice. In terms of where you can take away like something you could do right now, my invitation is how I think it's taking a moment just to pause, connecting in to yourself, maybe eyes closed or gently focused and attuning to how yoga isn't a practice that has to be mediated through anyone else. 
Yoga is here for all of us and you can directly speak to and be a vessel for yoga yourself. And so how is yoga wanting to move through you or speak through you or come deeper into your life right now? And you may get an answer through feelings, through sensations, through an inspiration to maybe take deeper breaths, to meditate, to practice asana, to practice yoga ethics. And when you get that answer for yourself to do that. So really just an invitation to be a vessel for yoga. I love that. It's a beautiful invitation that I hope everyone accepts. And Susanna, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your heart, and your experience. I I thank you so much. And I look forward to all the wonderful teachings that you have in the world and just encouraging everyone to keep learning and keep practicing. Thank you so much, Kino. Appreciate you sending gratitude to all. Super. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.